Welcome to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm D.T. Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Agersfar Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at dtkane.com. Here's the show. Chapter 34 I think we should go, Emma said. What? Baz had grabbed the nearest chair and propped it under the door handle. It wouldn't hold for any great length of time, but at least it'd make some noise to alert them if someone tried to enter. After all that, you want to just leave because the Duke's decor irks you? You didn't want to do this in the first place, Emma snapped back. Bloody burning books isn't that the truth, but it's done now. Come on, let's start looking. Emma put a knuckle to her lips, glancing from side to side until Baz began to feel as if he really ought to be more disturbed by the Duke's study. After all, hadn't Duke Octavenal had dozens of spoken books in his own study? But just because Farston didn't decorate the same as Octavenal didn't mean there was a problem. Come on, Emma, he said much more gently. This could be the only opportunity we have to do this. Let's find the blasted transcendence and get out of here. Farston probably just has his books locked up somewhere else. You heard Maeve last night. They're in the speaking rooms, or maybe he took all of them with him to erstwhile. Who knows? Maybe you're right, Emma said, eyes still darting about the study. But it's bizarre, and my father always told me... Well, never mind that. Let's search, but quickly. After some debate, they agreed to split up and search opposite ends of the vast study, slowly working toward the center. A familiar feeling ignited in Baz's chest as he began to look beneath chairs and glance inside cabinets. It was the same sense he'd had each time Tax had lifted that loose flagstone in the Torchsire speaking room, where he'd hidden the spoken book he'd stolen so he could teach Baz to read. The feeling of doing something he'd been taught was wrong, but that he somehow realized, deep inside, was right and worth the risk. Baz found himself smiling and even softly humming the tune of one of the songs Tax taught to the retirees. But as Baz continued to search, an additional, less appealing realization came to him. He wasn't finding anything, and he meant that literally. It wasn't just that the declaimer's transcendence hadn't yet popped out from a drawer or fallen from a shelf and smacked him in the noggin. It was that there was nothing anywhere he looked. The cabinets were empty, drawers containing nothing but dust, not even a hidden bottle of liquor or a stray sheet of paper. Does Farston even use this place? Baz muttered as he opened what must have been the tenth cabinet on his side of the room, a towering armoire, to find nothing but shadows within. I'm telling you, Baz, something's not right here. We need to go. Baz was beginning to wonder if she might be on to something. He swung the doors to the armoire shut and looked around the room, eyes landing on the desk at its center. There! He pointed at the hulking piece of furniture. Now, if there's nothing in that, we really are leaving. 
Not waiting for Emma to reply, he strode over to the desk and yanked on the knob to its topmost drawer. It didn't budge. Brightly colored inks! Here we go! Emma, come over here! She rushed over, her apprehension apparently forgotten at Baz's tone of excitement. What? Locked, Baz said, jiggling the drawer back and forth. Emma tried it for herself, then looked at Baz. There was a fire in her eyes that somehow managed to make him both extremely uncomfortable, yet also incredibly eager to be back in that spare bedroom in Maeve's house. There must be a key, Baz said. Maybe the same one we used to get in here opens it? Emma turned back to regard the desk for several moments. Maybe, but where's the lock? Baz returned his own gaze to the desk and realized Emma was right. No keyhole was evident anywhere. Maybe... Emma pushed the desk's chair aside and squatted down. Maybe it's under here. Getting down on all fours, she crawled beneath the desk. Feeling useless just standing there and staring at... Well, just standing there, Baz began to try the desk's other drawers. That one was locked, and that one, that giant one on the bottom, too. They were all... The thin drawer at the desk's center, the one that would be right over your legs if you sat down and pulled the chair in, sprung open. There was a single, folded sheet of paper within. Ordinarily, Baz wouldn't have bothered with it. Such scraps weren't large enough to hold spells, which meant it was very likely a note jotted down in the common tongue, which Baz couldn't read. But since it was the first thing he'd seen in any of the room's drawers or cabinets, he picked it up and unfolded it. It was a drawing. A sketch, really, though some pastel colors had been applied to it. It showed a young girl with dark hair and sharp gray eyes. She wore a green shirt with with yellow flowers stitched down one side. He stared at it slack-jawed for several long moments. Emma had been right. Something was wrong here. He had opened his mouth to tell her just that when a voice stopped him. Ah, Orator Bastion, what an unexpected but entirely wondrous surprise. Bez's mouth went dry as the blasted sands. The voice was calm as an ocean breeze, an ocean breeze that carried the salty stench of a sunken ship and many lives lost. Duke Farston Liamina stood maybe five paces in front of the desk, wearing the same upturned cavalier hat he'd worn at each of their previous meetings, its trio of feathers as pristine as if they'd just been plucked from a freshly slaughtered pheasant. Baz glanced numbly around the duke. The chair he'd propped under the door's handle remained in place, apparently untouched, and while he hadn't been paying particularly close attention, he was certain it had made no sound. Farston glanced back in the direction of Baz's gaze before returning his cold, colorless eyes to Baz. If you haven't put it together already, young orator, You'll soon realize that it takes a bit more than that to keep me from going where I wish. Baz swallowed, wanting to look away from the duke's piercing eyes, but he couldn't. Tension emanated from Emma, who was still beneath the desk. Impressive, I must say, that you got this far, Farston said. I know some of my guards are incompetent, but that one... 
he inclined his head toward the still unconscious man in the corner, was one of the less bumbling of the lot. Well, he was nothing I couldn't handle, Baz said, taking a step closer to the desk so that Emma couldn't back out and try something stupid. The Duke tilted his head to one side, neck cracking like the snap of a bowstring, then repeated the motion to the other side. Such arrogance! You evade us once and think yourself a god? Baz looked around the study, confused. Uh, is there someone else here with you? Farstan ignored him. Soon you will see the price of defying ones so much more powerful than yourself. The duke's tone hadn't changed, still tranquil as a bloody sunset, yet Baz was suddenly struck by the inalienable impression that he was speaking to a madman. But first, Farston said, I have a use for you, a need, even. A shame I must maintain my current appearance at least until the Congress is complete, but I have proper accommodations for you until I'm ready. Baz was certain Farston didn't step forward, yet suddenly he went from being paces away from the desk to directly in front of it without having tread the intervening space between. His hand shot out, wrapping around Baz's throat and lifted him off the ground with no more effort than if he'd been taking a jacket off a hook on the wall. Baz would have been surprised, but as soon as Farston's fingers touched him, his mind exploded in an agonizing cacophony of sound. Shrieking voices rang out against the interior of his skull, threatening to blow his eyes right from their sockets. Baz joined them, screaming in pain, his whole world consumed by the trauma in his head. His feet scraped across the desktop as Farston lifted him clear over it. But what's this? Farston asked, reaching for Og's leather pouch. Before Farston grasped it, though, his fingers brushed against Rox's worm-tooth necklace. The duke hissed like a frightened snake, tossing Baz to the floor like a pile of soiled laundry. As soon as Farston released him, the voices stopped, though Baz continued to scream for several moments longer. When the blinding pain subsided enough for him to see once more, he saw Farston grasping his arm just below the wrist, several of his fingers shining bright red as if he'd just been burned. That was nearly as perplexing as what was below the duke's wrist. His sleeve had slipped down his arm, revealing a complex series of tattoos inked along its length, disappearing up into the portion of the garment that still covered his flesh. Tattoos that looked strikingly similar to ones Baz had seen before. A moment later, Farston had regained his composure, lowering his hand as if he could forget pain with a mere thought. His disquieting stare returned to Baz. Did you really think I'd keep it here and so lightly guarded? Despite having curled into a protective ball and gasping for air, Baz's stomach still managed to sink through the floor. You bristic fool! You think I don't know why you are here? That meddlesome woman Tessa sent you, told you you'd find the Declaimer's transcendence here. Farston's voice hinted of a rage so hot, Baz curled further into himself. Well, she obviously did not warn you about me, or you'd never have agreed to such folly. 
Farston's voice had immediately returned to that imperturbable calm, like the silence before a capsizing wave crashed into a ship. Baz wanted Farston's words to be a lie, but he couldn't disbelieve them. Tessa had known that this would happen, or at least that it was a very real possibility, and that there was no hope for Baz to overcome Farston's might if he was caught. No wonder she hadn't told her daughter of the Transcendence's location. Even Tessa wasn't cold enough to consign her own flesh and blood to such a fate, though apparently she had no qualms doing it to a lowly speaker from erstwhile. Yes, I know it all, Farston said, but you'll never find the Declaimer's Transcendence. Its secrets are safe from your prying eyes. From all eyes. But enough talk. I must be returning to your insufferable reader soon. But we've a little time before I go. How would you like to see my dungeon? I must keep you alive, of course. But there are a great many ways to impress upon you the grievous errors you've made without leaving any lasting mark. Well, physical marks, at any rate. A smile played at the edge of Farston's mouth as he reached out to Baz once more. He flinched away, at least he thought he had, but somehow Farston's hand still wrapped around his wrist as if Baz hadn't moved an inch. Once more, the voices exploded in his mind, and for quite some time, Baz knew nothing but agony and the certainty that he'd been right. All rebels die in the end. All right, DT crew, welcome back to DT Kane's epic fantasy book club. Today is February 26th, 2023, as I record this, which is uh, episode 30 of season two of the podcast and episode number 57 overall. Oh, DT crew, it has been... Uh, <laughs> A challenging few days over here in the uh, the Kane household. I've had a bit of a stomach bug that I'm still uh, not quite over yet. I will uh, <laughs> I will spare you all the uh, the gory details, but uh, I have certainly not been nearly as productive as I uh, usually try to be. But uh, you know, health comes first, right? So uh, you know, got to give myself uh, some grace. And uh, you know, if any of you out there are struggling with any health problems right now, uh, you know, not that you need permission, but if you need to hear it from, uh, from somebody, you know, take it easy and get yourself, uh, feeling better. The work will be there, uh, when your, uh, when your health has righted itself. Uh, and those are, uh, those are some words of, uh, wisdom that, uh, that I could take here as well. <clears throat> uh, so let's see. I hope you guys enjoyed chapter 34 there. Baz uh, appears to be in some serious trouble here with Farston's uh, surprise reappearance in Fortune. Uh, kind of unclear how he got back so quickly, right? He's supposed to be still like a seven-day uh, hard ride away from the city. So, uh, you know, how did he magically reappear here so quickly? Is he able to use the Iron Dragon? Uh, that would seem to be... Uh, the only method uh, of which he could have gotten there so quickly, but 
you know, that would have serious consequences if Farsta knows about uh, the Iron Dragon, wouldn't it? So, I don't know. We'll have to find out as we keep reading. So, next week we are going to read the first half of chapter 35, and we'll be uh, flipping perspective uh, in the next few chapters over to uh, Deliritus. We kind of left Deliritus behind there for a while after uh, Baz was captured, but now we'll be heading back to Deliritus, uh, making a slight time shift to uh, seven days from when Baz was caught uh, by Farston in this chapter that we just read. Uh, and Deliritus, uh, you'll see, has just arrived in Fortune himself. And we can kind of do some compare and contrast to Deliritus' reaction to Fortune versus uh, the reaction Baz had when he first saw it. Uh, so yeah, we'll read the first half of that chapter, 35, up until uh, uh, Deliritus will see a, uh, a man in a curiously colorful uh, uh, garment in, uh, standing in the crowd. Um, so we'll read up to that point next week uh okay uh what else here um the pre-order for into the dragon's maw part five of the spoken books uprising is uh still going on here so uh get your order in if you'd like to be one of the uh the first to read it you can go to books to read.com slash uh dragon's maw actually i guess i should make sure that's what it is is it Dragon's Maw or Into the Dragon's Maw? Let's see. Nope, don't listen to me. It's Into the Dragon's Maw. So bookstoread.com slash into the Dragon's Maw, all one word. Uh, and that's books to read with the number two in the center. Bookstoread.com slash into the Dragon's Maw. And uh, that'll take you uh, to a page that links to uh, all the retailers it's currently available for pre-order on. <clears throat> Uh, okay, and then, uh, you know, no quote of the week again this week. I didn't put a newsletter together, but I did do a little more work on uh, the short story I started reading to you last week about Lazarus and his talking dog, or at least his dog that has the translator collar that Lazarus can hear. Um, as you'll recall, we just met Trip, this, uh, curious young uh, man with kind of the emotionless voice, and he has just suggested that uh, Lazarus and his dog accompany him to the Carnival of Robots. Um, so I'm going to read uh, the next little part of the short story here, and uh, I'm going to be, I guess this is going to be kind of an ongoing series here as I keep working on this. <clears throat> and like I said, I'm not a uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be narrating this perfectly. So uh, if I make mistakes, I'm just gonna just repeat myself. <clears throat> this is just supposed to be fun here, people. Lazarus had once been a microbiologist. Well, he'd been a lot of things, but biology had always been a favorite of his. That's why it never ceased to amaze Bud when Lazarus said something completely preposterous. Did you know that parakeets were the first domesticated species on Mars? Lazarus asked. That's not true, Bud growled. Lazarus didn't even glance his way as he continued to inspect the enclosure that held a flock of long-tailed green birds. The robots were the carnival's main attraction, but it featured all sorts of oddities. Bud considered leaping the barrier for a snack. There'd be a fine, but he could afford that. The paperwork, though. thought of that stopped him. Holding a pen was such a pain. I always thought it was cats, Tripp's date said. 
Bud growled again. This time, there was nothing to translate. I'm pretty sure it was parakeets, Lazarus said. Irrelevant, Tripp said. The cathedral is this way. The well, let's try that again. <clears throat> Irrelevant, Tripp said. The cathedral is this way. The young man strode through the crowd as if he expected them to follow. Lazarus offered his arm to the woman. She turned up her nose at him and strode off after Tripp. Smooth, Bud said. I think she's coming around, Lazarus, re <clears throat> Lazarus replied. She's coming around to asking her boyfriend to slug you. Lazarus was already following after the woman. Bud wished he could stay behind just to make a point, but no Langdog could do that. As Bud padded after Lazarus, he had to turn down his olfactory receptors. Martians loved fried food, and the scent of it was overwhelming. The geneticists had phased most of the animal urges from Langdog genes, but he still had a hard time resisting Olympus Mons frites, the twice-fried potatoes first made famous at the high-altitude pubs on Olympus Mons. Lazarus often lamented to Bud about how difficult it must be being a dog. Bud had similar thoughts about humans. Take walking, for example. As a man, you had to walk about at eye level with all the other men, greatly increasing the chances that someone would speak to you. That alone was enough to make Bud grateful to be a dog. Talking to Lazarus was bad enough. Bud adjusted his receptors again to ensure he didn't lose Lazarus's scent. He dodged around heels and boots and bare Martian feet, the gray monstrosities twice as large as a human's. Lazarus's odor was slightly sweet from the apple vodka. Apparently, there were few Appletini enthusiasts at the carnival, as Lazarus stood out just like he had a neon sign over his head. Even that smell, though, was overcome by a new one as they approached the cathedral, Android Serum. There was nothing religious about the cathedral. Most worship had gone the way of old earth, consumed by a black hole. But a couple of centuries past, Gothic architecture had celebrated a brief revival, and the cathedral was the crowning achievement of that era. Gray stone veined in red, mined from Vallis Marineris, cut into great blocks. There were arches everywhere one could be accommodated, crenellations lining the roofline, and lots of angles. Gargoyles with wings spread wide cast shadows over the carnival goers. Trip took the cathedral steps two at a time and entered through double doors made of wood, a real luxury on a planet where the only wood was synthesized in the biolabs of Hellas Planetitia. An eruption of sound leaked from the doors, and Bud laid his ears flat as he followed after Lazarus. A little girl made to reach into his back pocket seconds after they entered, but Bud snapped at her and she ran off into the crowd. Behave, Lazarus said, eyes still focused on Tripp's date. Bud considered nipping at his heels. Oh, look, the woman exclaimed. They're doing the moonwalk, my favorite. Bud realized the cacophony coming from within the cathedral was what humans called music when the woman began dancing in place. She was standing beside Trip at the base of a circular stage surrounded by people. The room was vast, vendors packed side by side, selling more fried foods and the latest Martian fashions in yellow and pink silks. 
The stage was beneath a multi-story ceiling, spectators hanging from the balconies. Lights had been positioned behind the stained glass set into the roof, casting a kaleidoscope of colors onto the performers below. Here was the main attraction, the carnival's namesake. Robots were outlawed for the most part, but were permitted in small, tightly regulated numbers in a few provinces. Provinces. They all looked the same, humanoid in shape, smooth bronze plating on the limbs and faces, silver torsos. Their eyes were multifaceted sensors, sparkling as they reflected the light from the stained glass. They were all unclothed, as garments were illegal for any robot. Bud rose up on his hind legs, paws on Lazarus's shoulders to get a better view. The robots moved at once like men and nothing like them, like someone's dream of how a perfect man might move, lithe, impossibly graceful. They were gliding backwards across the stage in unison, their not-eyes straight ahead, metal faces incapable of expression. Down, Lazarus said, shrugging his shoulders. Ordinarily, Bud would have been annoyed, but he heard the sudden strain in his owner's voice and so instead obeyed, then gave a comforting nudge against his leg. Lazarus rubbed behind Bud's ears in reply. Around that time was when Trip jumped onto the stage, a knife in each hand. To be continued. All right, that was part two of uh, my short story, Purebred lang dog about lazarus and his talking dog bud um would still love to hear what you guys think of uh, <laughs> that fun little short story here so far i think uh part three will probably be uh the conclusion of it uh so uh, there you have it and that's all we've got for this week uh so until next time and hopefully next time i'm feeling better here uh this has been dt kane's epic Fantasy Book Club. Thanks for listening to DT Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. If you liked today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, give this video a thumbs up if you liked it and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available. If you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com slash podcast. D.T. Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers, or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com slash books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for D.T. Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com slash email dash sign up. If you'd like to connect, you can find D.T. Kane on Facebook at D.T. Kane Author or Twitter at D.T. Kane Author, or send D.T. Kane an email at dtkane at dtkane.com. See you next week.